Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's delve into one of the most controversial chapters in the Bible, one of the most difficult to interpret and apply outside of ancient Corinth. But there's something beautiful to behold about a reverence for the presence of God on his church that we share today with the ancient Corinthian believers. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Tagging on with what we saw yesterday, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. He has just implored the Corinthian believers, flee from idolatry, eat what's put in front of you, but don't judge people for what they eat. Do all of it for the glory of God. Don't try to offend anybody. Try to live at peace with everybody for the benefit of all so that you may win some people for Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now I praise you, verse two, chapter 11, because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of the woman. And God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. Remember in ancient Corinth, you had temple prostitutes with shaved heads. So in the original Corinthian context, that's what they associated with. For if a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. And the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so also man comes through woman, and all things come from God. We're going to delve into this in this weekend's sermon, too, because I know it's going to raise a whole lot of questions. But I want to go back and cover some pieces of this, beginning with verse 2. Now, I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Paul planted this church. Everything that they received when they first were planted was brand new, hot off the presses, uh, one of the first major Gentile hubs for Christianity following the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. Do you remember the very beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1? If you weren't with us when we studied Acts, in Acts chapter 1, there's red letter text, which means that Jesus is speaking. The resurrected Jesus talks in the opening of the book of Acts, and he tells them exactly what's going to happen. You, talking to his apostles, which did not yet include Paul, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, from Jerusalem, just as Jesus prophesied, the persecution of Christianity spread it outward. Corinth became kind of the new hub for Christianity after Jerusalem, only it's in a totally Gentile city. It's a really big deal. They didn't have the Old Testament legacy to build upon. Paul had tried to plant the church, he would always start with the Jews. He'd always start at the synagogue. And when they would kick him out, he'd wipe the dust off his feet and then go preach to the Gentiles. And in the city of Corinth, that's exactly what happened. In Acts chapter 18, Crispus, the original leader of the synagogue, gets saved. 
but Paul gets kicked out. They try to persecute the, uh, the, the Jews, try to persecute the Christians by bringing in the Romans to have them kicked out. Uh, they're unsuccessful, and so they fire Sosthenes, their, their new synagogue leader, after Crispus, and they physically beat him up uh, because they're so dissatisfied. Uh, Sosthenes, by the way, is helping Paul write this letter. <laughs> so both Crispus and Sosthenes, both former leaders of the synagogue in Corinth, are helping Paul with this. When we go to when he would go to a synagogue, you had you had generations of history and traditions. When you would minister to Gentiles, you had to establish new traditions, a whole new way of doing things. Their way of worshiping beforehand sometimes involved sex with a temple prostitute. It's time for some new traditions. That's going to be a really stinking weird church. So when he passes on traditions to them, he's talking about things like the ordinances, something he's going to cover in this text. They were evidently botching communion and they were botching worship itself. You're going to see some parallels between the mistakes being made in the ancient Corinthian church and the mistakes being made in the modern American church. One of those was communion, but I think that we've done a pretty good job with communion. The, the only mistake I see in corporate Christianity across the church, it's hard to make a blanket statement like this, but we don't often warn people about the consequences of violating communion. The other one was, this was a charismatic church and they were using the spiritual gifts improperly and there was chaos. That if somebody from the outside who doesn't know Christ were to walk into one of their gatherings, he would say, these people are absolutely crazy. So Paul's gonna address that issue. Another issue is you had brand new converts, women who had come from the temple prostitution lifestyle in Corinth, and now we're coming into the church and we're beginning to speak and lead. The issue with that is they're baby Christians. Like, hang on a second, my sister in Christ, like this time last year, you were leading in a pagan temple. Okay, like this guy grew up memorizing the Torah. Let's let him say what he has to say and let him say it in, you know, Greek <laughs> that everybody here understands. So there was some huge gender bending reordering of church polity going on in the church of Corinth, which is some of the same kind of things that are happening in the modern American church today. Okay, this is possibly the most inflammatory issue in the church world. I think even more so than your stance on what God thinks about abortion, what God thinks about homosexuality, I feel like in the church world, this is the biggest landmine of all, and it's not even a new one. It was something that the ancient Corinthian church also wanted to bend the rules on. When Paul would write to the Philippians, when, when Peter would write to Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Bithynia and Asia, and when Peter, when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and when he wrote uh, to the Ephesian church, and when he wrote to Timothy, and when he wrote to Titus, I mean, like in every single one of these contexts, it was very clear he expected men to take leadership roles. And in every one of these contexts, that order kept flipping. So when he makes this statement in verse 3, he is referring to a differentiation between men and women and God's intended roles for men and women going all the way back to creation itself. Verse 3, But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Built into that last clause, by the way, is a fascinating teaching within the Trinity. It's consistent with what Jesus prayed in John 16 and John 17, rather what Jesus taught in John 16, what he prayed in John 17. 
about his submission to the will of the Father. God is the head of Christ, is the last clause of verse 3. But I know that you're probably stuck on what he just said, that man is the head of woman. That is offensive in our culture today. But my liberal friend, try to be open-minded. Try to open your mind in such a way to conceive of a world in which people live a different lifestyle from you due to different religious beliefs than your own. We're even hosting an event um, this weekend where my wife is going to speak and I'm going to join her and we're going to talk about this, how she follows my lead. It is not misogynistic. It is absolutely not misogynistic. It is not hierarchical. It is not built upon some sort of belief that men are superior to women. Not at all. Not at all. We simply let the Lord determine what we believe and we don't let culture tell us what to believe. These days, I think it's actually quite brave, particularly of my wife, to adhere to a biblical worldview in the face of a culture that is telling her that that's wrong, that's not what's best for her. She chooses to submit to the Lord. And as she submits to the Lord and to his word, she follows my lead in this. If you wanna hear her talk about this firsthand, sign up today <laughs> for the Renew event. God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. Every man who prays or prophesies for something on his, on his head dishonors his head, that's verse four. This is why I don't wear hats when I preach in corporate worship. I hate my hair. I always have. Uh, that's why I had a, probably why I had a buzz cut too. I wanted to stay off those websites that make fun of pastors for how much they spend on their haircuts and how much they pay for their shoes. And so I was like, make fun of this haircut. And I, I usually would wear a ball cap. Those of you who knew me before I you know, was in full-time ministry, you knew when I was just a a drummer, you know me as a guy who wear a ball cap, usually off to the side, just a little bit, kind of all the time. That's just what I've always done my whole life, since I was a kid, when wearing a ball cap. And uh, when I knew God was calling me to be a pastor, I was like, ah, man, it means that I can't preach with my hat on. <laughs> and if I'm in another context, if I'm in a less formal context, if it's just me and some students, me and a few guys, me and a few people, or sometimes even me just giving these devotions, then I don't mind wearing a ball cap. But out of respect for this verse, I don't wear a hat when I preach to the Redemption Church, when the saints are gathered to hear from the Word of God, I don't wear a hat. There was a beautiful woman at our, our church in Orlando. What's up, Nancy? We love you guys. I know that Joe just had a birthday. She was a precious woman of God. And she would wear these kind of British style hats to church. And she said, I wear these just in case 1 Corinthians 11 is to be applied outside of Corinth, just in case it is to be applied literally. Also, I just like hats. <laughs> so that was Nancy's application to this text, where she would wear a head covering because she would pray and she would prophesy. What's, what's also interesting is that this does describe women praying in church and prophesying in church. They just got to do it with their head coverings. We'll get caught up on the head covering aspect of it. By the way, as Paul goes on in the text that we're going to cover tomorrow and a little bit in our sermon this weekend, you're going to see that long hair does constitute a natural head covering, according to Paul's standard for the Corinthian church. But what we miss is that does include women praying in church. That does include women prophesying in church, meaning 
to give a teaching from the Lord, to get up and read the Bible, for example. It does not describe a woman doing the work of a pastor. Stay tuned. We get to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. We'll delineate that further. But this does describe women praying in church, prophesying in church. They're just doing so with a symbol of authority on their heads, out of consideration for the angels. Jesse, what in the world does that mean? I've got an interpretation, and I'll offer it tomorrow. But... I know that I've just barely kicked the hornet's nest and now we're signing off, but I do want to wrap up today with a beautiful calling for the reverence for the holiness of the presence of God that is innate within this text. He's speaking to a bunch of newly converted pagans about like, here's how you do church. Here are the traditions. Here's how you do communion. Here's how you carry out worship. Here's how you exercise the spiritual gifts. All right, here's how, here's how you carry out worship. It's not like what you did in the pagan temples. Okay, it's not like you do this in the worship of Artemis or Diana. It's not like, it's not like what you would do in, in, in the worship of the whole Greco-Roman pantheons. It's totally different. It's to be done in reverence and awe for God, the head of Christ, who's the head of man, who's the head of woman. When you couple this with Ephesians chapter 5, you see this beautiful design for marriage in which a husband and wife together are a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of this is done out of reverence and awe for God. Modern day church can take on a feel that sometimes uh, looks contemporary, but that does not mean that it is irreverent. There's nothing biblically ascribing a certain musical style to worship, for example. Nothing prescribing certain instrumentation to the church and telling it what kind of technology it needs to use and what it does not need to use. What matters though is that there is reverence for God that we hold his holiness in high esteem, that we lift his word up far above what culture would tell us. Ancient Corinthians needed to abdicate this pagan culture that was ubiquitous in their world. And likewise, you and I today need to abdicate a pagan culture that completely turns God's hierarchy on its head and would try to affix a label upon you that says like you're small-minded, you're bigotous, you're misogynistic because you believe this. Look, I just believe God's word. That's what I believe. And I believe the right side of history has always been God's side of history. So I know that right now you're probably getting ready to type all sorts of angry all caps comments at me on the YouTube channel. But know that Tomorrow we're going to continue in the text, and this weekend we're going to continue in the text. Come to the Redemption Church in person and speak with me about this. I want to abide by what God says, no matter what the world says. This passage was ubiquitously well accepted for centuries upon centuries, uh, and now it's come out of fashion again. But I'm going to stand by it because it's the Word of God. I'm going to be faithful to the Bible. So is my beautiful, amazing, strong, brilliant bride. All right, if you want to know what it is to submit to a man's leadership in the context of marriage in a church, come speak with my, my undercover missionary wife. All right, she can tell you exactly what it's like. Go to redemptionwashington.com and join us for Renew, where my bride is going to teach this. I'll see you there.